Transformationist is dedicated to real stories of transformation and the insights and actions that make it possible. Our guests share from their own stories, the strategies and experiences that can help you shape transformation in your own life. Whether you are changing your mind, responding to change, or designing a life different from what you have right now, my hope is that these stories will inspire you and help you on the way. Hi, I'm Tash McGill, and welcome to The Transformationist. There are a few things in life that are perhaps more challenging to navigate than when you change your theological construct and framework for how you engage in life and spirituality. And yet it's a very common theme amongst so many of the people that I talk to and that we've had on this podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Michael Frost, otherwise known as Frosty. Um, And he comes from a really interesting background. He started out looking at biomedical science and has worked his way into now being a theological uh, teacher, researcher, speaker, writer, all of the things about communication, which is interesting for somebody who's such an introvert. Welcome to the show, Frosty. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Tash. Hey, I'm just I'm glad to have you here. And I'm excited about this conversation because it's taken us a couple of attempts to get here. It, it has taken us a couple of attempts and a, and a mistaken placement of a cup of peppermint tea. <laughs> uh, yes, episode number one featuring uh, featuring Dr. Frost um, also featured a computer blowing up. Yeah, apparently uh, cups of hot tea when poured through the keyboard of a laptop not a great combo. So we've got, we've taken a different a different angle today. We've started with uh, whiskey, and I believe you're on a gin and tonic. I am actually. So there we go. Yeah, which is which seems appropriate for conversations that are bound to me- meander through uh, theology and ideology about spirituality. Absolutely, and I think uh, you know what the universe was telling us last time was that tea was in no way satisfactory. <laughs> If in doubt, level up. That's right. Level up. Okay, so tell us a little bit about your story because you grew up in a very conservative, fundamental religious environment and then went off to study biomedical science and now you're in an altogether different place. So tell us a little bit about what that journey was like for you. Well, that's a big question. Um, But yes, my parents had been hippies who had um, done a lot of drugs and then that had led them to deciding that Jesus was their Lord and Saviour. And so they became, they converted to Christianity, I guess, around the kind of Jesus movement stuff, which happened in the 70s, and became quite conservative Pentecostal. Kind of a pendulum swing from there. Yeah, in some senses a, a pendulum swing. I think maybe what was common to both was the desire for some kind of transcendent experience. Mm-hmm. Um, they might not have described it that way, but I think that's probably a common feature of both of those trajectories. Um, but I mean, I was born into a home that, so at six months old, we were off, they were off to Bible college with me as a baby. So I grew up in a, in a church home. Um, they were involved in ministry and leadership and all that kind of stuff. And so I just absorbed all of that uh, in all of its curious ways. You know, I grew up trying to predict when uh, Jesus Christ was going to return. <laughs> <laughs> did, uh, you, did you have a little map? Were you plotting the end signs as they appeared in newspaper headlines? And I'm pretty sure my mother was. Uh, <laughs> I was. I was just stat- taking a stab at the years. Right. So, okay. You know, as a 
five or six year old, I decided 1987 was the year Jesus was coming back, just based on gut instinct, you know, intuition. <laughs> you had a lot of intuition. <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out well, we can really trust those intuitive feelings um, because look at how that turned out. So Okay. Um, did you ever feel, um, did you ever feel that you were missing out on some kind of family or parental experience because of how involved and committed to sort of the faith practice your parents were? Or were you kind of so embedded in it that you it was just normal for you? It was totally normal. So I was, I think they had made a real concerted effort actually to not overcommit to church-based commitments and just mm-hmm. leave, leave us behind all the time. But we did get dragged along to a lot of stuff. Okay. So I do have memories of sleeping under the chairs of a school hall while they prayed into the night, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there are more embarrassing versions of those stories that involve tambourines and dancing in circles, but we won't necessarily go into all of that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they do make for... Here's what I think is interesting. You and I are around about the same age yeah. and uh, both have a background, mine slightly less probably conservative, but both have a background growing up in a Christian church. And yet how interesting it is that our perceptions of that, which seemed very normal for me as a child growing up, now as you know, somebody in my mid to late 30s, close, closer that, that to That mid, mid is super important. <laughs> but as somebody in my mid to late 30s, it's so interesting how um, how definitive that has become as a character caricature in my mind. You know, the the tambourines, the ribbons, the dancing, the banners waving, um, the black and whiteness of of a Christian faith back then. Yeah, I think it's interesting in the sense that it was so familiar and so close that you that I couldn't see it growing up in it. You know, mm-hmm. it was just the way things were. Uh, and it was everybody else who was weird in the sense that everyone else needed to be convinced of this amazing thing that I was a part of mm-hmm. rather than seeing it as me being involved in this thing. When that was, was the, a bit strange. When was the first time that you felt like maybe the tables were turned and you thought, wait, maybe maybe, maybe we're the weird ones? Hmm, I think <laughs> that happened probably in a number of instances in different ways. The first little while... Well, the first few times that happened, I was still convinced that even though we were weird, we were weird for the right reasons, you know? Okay, yeah. So when I handled it, handed out um, Christian gospel pamphlets at primary school <laughs> to my friends, uh, they thought it was weird and I knew they thought it was weird, but I knew it was what they needed. Otherwise mm-hmm. they might burn forever. Uh, and And then maybe as a teenager, I knew that I was definitely a bit odd because of what I participated in. Um, And so there was this weird kind of split probably between how I felt when I was within this quite intense church environment Mm -hmm. versus how I would then feel about that when I was at school and probably one of the only two or three um, religious or Christian kids that were in my year. Right. Where then you knew you were a bit odd. Yeah. Because, of course, being the age that we are and living in New Zealand, by the time we're growing up in the late 80s, early 90s, New Zealand is well and truly a post-Christian culture yeah, by that point. Mm-hmm. And so there is no kind of normative, everybody kind of is okay with the language of church and God and faith because that was the boat had long sailed. Yeah, totally. So you don't have everybody going off to church on Sunday 
as a cultural practice mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. Um, you have some weirdos who go to church. And then I was, because I was Pentecostal. You were like, super weirdo. <laughs> yeah, the weird of the weirdos, you know. Right. Um, so that's a great combo. Yeah, uh, brilliant. It, it was sort of counterbalanced by the sense that I was, whilst being odd and the weird one out, was somehow mysteriously in on this thing that no one else was in on. So that was kind of exhilarating in its own kind of way. It's it's um it's like you're in the know and nobody else is. So even though they see you all as weird, you know that you've really got the inside scoop, mm-hmm. which is a very intoxicating kind of feeling in its own way. Okay. Was there a point at which that intoxicating feeling became uncomfortable? Oh, many. Yes, I think so. And I think um, when I went to sort of probably around the time when I was finishing school, I was starting to... Um, bend a little on some of those things and and start to ask myself some harder questions. And then I moved to Auckland to go to university, ended up moving into a Christian hostel because introvert slash procrastinator had left it to the last week before I moved to the big city before I organised accommodation and the only available one was a Baptist hostel, shot the Baptists. Uh, So... um, I found myself in a Christian hostel and then going off to church. And so I, I became subsumed again within, so I think probably a process that was starting to happen in my last year of school, uh, then quickly got curtailed by my um, being absorbed into a much bigger and even more intense version right, okay. of the kind of faith that I'd grown up with. Mm. So when do the cracks start to appear? for you in this shift because the person that I know now is a little bit more, uh, is, is perhaps less tied to, and you can correct me if I'm wrong in a minute, but, but less tied to some of those very concrete binary descriptions of a faith system uh, and much more exploratory and much more willing to have, you know, you're much less in the know, I would say, and and sort of position and posture yourself as somebody who's kind of willingly embracing the mystery. Um, so when do the cracks begin to appear that, that your dissatisfaction or um, perhaps it was it distrust of the religious system you were part of was starting to crumble and fall apart. Yeah, it's really interesting to think back upon these experiences. In my early 20s, I was now working as a scientist. <laughs> and, and I had been brought up, you know, with this very literal creation story. Were you even allowed to believe in science? Well, look, what happened was the reason I was allowed to believe in science was because in studying biomedical science, I was trying to save the world through curing incurable diseases or something like that. So, okay. so that gave me a real good reason to study science. It's just when I turned up at university, apparently everyone held to this crazy theory uh, about evolution and the world being millions of years old. And I was like, what's going on here with all these crazy people believing this nonsense? So in my uh, <laughs> university exam, when I filled out the uh, section on evolution, I had to give them all the answers they wanted and at the end of it say, I've just given you these answers because I know this is what you want, but I know the truth, which is not <laughs> that this is not true. And God created the world in six days, and it's amazing, um, awesome. I'm and you know, on the inside. Oh, well, it, you should be in my skin. Um, <sighs> I'm sure my science professors read that and were struck to the heart. <laughs> well, do you know uh, what it is? It's because here's what here's what makes me cringe on the inside of that. Yes. It's not it's not your position or otherwise mm. on evolution, um, but it's the fervency 
and the commitment and the passion of youth that has this kind of like bold stated claim and it just takes me back to all the times in my life when I've been certain that I've known something and then realised 10 years later, oh my Lord, that was embarrassing because I didn't know at all what I was talking about. I certainly look back on many experiences in my life in that way. Uh, yes, with some regret, but also with some compassion for myself, mm-hmm. which is I think, you know, part of growing up is figuring this stuff out, right? Um, I went off to work in a, in a science research company and my job was to read DNA and to try and figure out what it was saying. And I remember sitting with a colleague and comparing two pieces of DNA between two different organisms. Mm-hmm. And I said to my colleague, oh, look at that. You can see the way it's, ev- you can see the evolutionary connections. You can see the way it's evolved from this to this between these two DNA sequences. And then suddenly I caught myself saying this out loud. And I was like, what did I just say? Uh, this is outrageous because I still didn't believe that. Mm. Appar- apparently on a conscious level, but, but already obviously under the surface, I was seeing things that were not allowing me to stay within the quite narrow framework. So that kind of experience happened in all sorts of different ways for a few years in my early to mid twenties. But I managed to somehow take those and, and suppress them and push them back down again. Um, probably because in many senses, belonging was at stake, you know? So I mm. felt like I'm part of this thing and, and I matter and I belong mm-hmm. and I've got friendships and I'm even sort of important because I'm a part of this community and I'm recognized as being a part of it. Mm-hmm. And if I was to start allowing these questions to come to the surface, this is my reflection now on what was happening for sure. me. Um, then my belonging is at threat. And so that's a pretty powerful motivator to just push those back down and hope that they go away. And then eventually what what happens is that life experience also starts to intersect with you. And it did with me. And not only my own life experiences, but looking at the lives of all the people that I'd started out at 17, 18, 19, and we were all these passionate, committed people who were all adopted this very precise and narrow framework of belief. Mm. And then a few years later, you look around and look at what's happened in the lives of both your own life and also the lives of the people that you've known and continue to know and see that, man, this has not played out at all the way that we thought. And so either all of these people have betrayed the system or God or the church or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. um, and they're the ones who are at fault. And maybe that's you can, you can hold to that for a while, um, but then when the numbers get quite large, and they become your own experience as well. Mm-hmm. Like maybe the problem is not all of these people for whom the system is not working, but maybe the problem is the system. Um, so, would you say that at that that up until that point, you had been had you been living in in a world that was defined by do good, be good, get good, versus you know do the best you can and bad shit might happen anyway. Um, yeah, there was a, an amazing internal logic to it, I think, which is that if you are good and you do good things, then God will be good to you. Mm. But if God isn't good to you for whatever reason, it's not because God isn't being good to you because God is bad. 
Uh, there are all sorts of like uh, secondary reasons that help keep the internal logic of the system working. So mm. it might be that you're under test or under trial or you are being uh, put through something to develop character or, um, I mean, and many times we were told it was because we were under attack from the devil, you know, who mm-hmm. was, and that's because we were doing such good things mm-hmm. that clearly that's the reason things were going badly in our lives might be because we were so good, you know, <laughs> which is encouraging <laughs> in its own way, even if it's terrible. So, um, you know, that kind of internal logic holds you again for a, for a certain amount of time. But there, I think there was there was a system there which said, generally speaking, if you live this kind of way and do these kinds of things, then this is what you should expect. Um, and that works really well anecdotally for some people. Um, but the problem is when things don't happen as you expect and the kind of anxiety that that creates when that gap gets too wide between the kind of life you're supposed to be experiencing and the kind of life you're actually experiencing. Mm, mm. How, how long was your tolerance period? before you started to go, wait, this, this logic is, is not taking me to a place that I want to go. Way too long, <laughs> in hindsight. But again, right. I, I, in having some compassion for myself, my, my sense of belonging and meaning were, were very um, profound and, mm. and strong. And we all want our lives, well, maybe we don't all, but many of us want our lives to matter and to mean something and we want to belong. And when those things are there, it can be it can take longer than normal to to unpick what's actually going on. Well, I mean, if you think about it, when we, and I think this is one of the interesting parts of any kind of spiritual community, but um, certainly I think the 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 Western Church has probably got it on lock um, because they're very good at programming. Um, but the uh, any kind of spiritual community provides something, provides a foundation, provides a network, provides a structure for living that has social engagement, that has those elements of belonging, that really disappear once you leave high school and university. Um, You might find it uh, in a workplace scenario, rarely, but you might find it. Um, And, you know, my observation is that the older we get, the less less competent we are in terms of making friends and new connections and and finding new social relationships. So the church really does provide this really well-structured way of not having to be alone. Yeah, and I think in 21st century life, a lot of those middle spaces are disappearing. So mm. whether it's, you know, sports clubs or rotary clubs, or whatever, you know, the various things that occupy that, that middle space between state and individual personal, um, those things are disappearing. And so church is one of the last things that holds that kind of space. Um, and especially in your 20s and 30s, early 30s, maybe where you're, where you're forming those those connections that you feel are going to be lifelong and you have the time and the energy maybe uh, <laughs> to to invest into friendships in that kind of way. Mm. Um, those things, yeah, really do hold you in place um, and you're able to tolerate all sorts of stuff if those needs are still being met in some kind of way mm. um, until things get intolerable. And, mm. and I suppose in my later 20s, things became increasingly intolerable for me. What kind of things? Uh, I think it's, I could tolerate, well, well, two things happened. One, I was having life experiences that were saying, hey, maybe, maybe the system doesn't work the way that you thought it does. The system of life, the system of the universe, mm. system of God and us. Uh, and then also I was starting to do some theological study at that time 
And I was like, ooh. Um, that was an interesting experience in that I was hearing things that said, maybe this text is not saying what you thought it was saying. Maybe um, this faith is not about the things that you thought it was about. And that was kind of both very exciting and liberating and also like, oh no, that's going to ruin everything. <laughs> this kind of growing awareness that, man, if this, if this, if this, if I'm going to be faithful to this journey and this trajectory of of learning, then I know that this is going to mm-hmm. create problems. But there were problems I knew I had to face because what I was learning and starting to think about were things that were genuinely transformative okay. and, and liberating, and and and. In that sense, then, I guess what I was recognising was, and I'm comfortable disagreeing with, I think I'm comfortable with disagreeing with people. I'm not a great fan of conflict, that's to be fair. Uh, but uh, I've never felt like um, everybody needs to believe the same things as me in exactly the same ways as me. But what became most problematic for me, I think, was looking at the way in which faith and spirituality and belief could be used to to control and to manage and to manipulate people into doing things with their time, energy and money that is actually not beneficial for them. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that ultimately became most problematic for me. And especially when I'd see friends who would encounter uh, disruption, uh, maybe through some kind of painful or difficult or tragic experience and the way in which the system functioned to essentially squeeze them to the side and and unless they respond in exactly the right way, mm-hmm. squeeze them to side and leave them behind. Uh, and I just looked at that kind of stuff and I was like, there is something fundamentally wrong with this entire project. Mm-hmm. Um, because at that point you're kind of, you're talking about it, you're not, you're talking about a difference between the, the essence of the faith, right? So there's a belief system, but then there's a system of power and behaviour which propagates or um, yeah which propagates maintaining the belief system but actually is working sometimes against some working for some completely different motive yeah and I think so you've got this this interesting dynamic between belief and power mm-hmm. and and what I started to recognize over time was also that there were certain beliefs that sat at the heart of that system, which were primed for power. Like, um, can you give us an example? Well, like if you take, for example, let's say you take a notion of God, I feel like a lot of um, Christians, and I feel like this would be my experience for much of my life, have almost two versions of God in their mind. So they have like a top layer and a bottom and a, and a second layer of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the top layer is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and that's amazing and awesome. We can. Um, sing songs about that because yeah. that sounds nice. And everything's good and oh, everything will be okay. Yeah, and everything will turn out all right and it's great yeah. and it's awesome and fantastic. Uh, and then the second layer beneath that is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but if you don't love him back, he'll torture you forever. And um, when that sits beneath the surface, even if you don't talk about that a lot, I feel like that idea, that belief is ripe, is designed in many respects, for people with power to use that to be able to manage and control people and get them to do what you want them to do. Which takes us right to Constantine, right? Let's just like go all the way back into some ancient history here. Mm. But 
But one could talk about the evolution of Christianity as a religion, actually, as the development and evolution. I'm trying to use that word as much as possible. Um, <laughs> but the, the development and evolution of a socio-political system designed to absolutely manipulate and harness the power of the common people to maintain a separation between the haves and the haves-nots. Yeah, so in the, in, in the fourth century, Christianity shifts fundamentally from a movement that sits on the underside of power. And in fact, the entire biblical text is, well, almost entirely the biblical text is written from the underside of, of mm. power. Um, but in the fourth century, Constantine, who's the emperor, decides to convert, essentially, the <laughs> empire uh, with a sweep of, a, of his hand uh, to, to take up this faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that sense, then, theology becomes um, incredibly politicised in that uh, the stability of the church became a matter of empire mm-hmm. because if the church was stable, then the empire was stable. And so we must get everybody to agree on everything mm-hmm. because disagreement will be instability and instability will mean the empire is unstable and then we'll have to kill people. And It's much easier if you just get them to think what you want them to think. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it costs much less. So, uh, you know, the way in which... Um, disagreement started to be treated within the church from the fourth century onwards after Con- after Constantine. Yeah, it's this inti- it's this alliance between um, re- Christian religion and power that reshapes some of the core ideas that sit at the heart of probably what Jesus was on about half the time or all of the time. <laughs> probably all of the probably time. Probably all of the time. I should give him more credit than half of the time. <laughs> Sorry, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Just gave you 50% of yeah, the credit yeah. today. but oh. The other half was good too. Yes. Yes. Uh, so when did you when did you learn? Um, and I'm genuinely curious about this. When did you learn about the relationship between religion and power, and the way that our, in particular, our Western society has been formed? So I probably learned it experientially first, and theoretically second. Mm. So I learned it experientially when I um, decided to question some people in power and ask them about some of the things we were talking about. Right. Um, and I experienced the consequences of um, that power system and the way in which it can work mm. to, um, to manage you mm-hmm. and, and work you into a way where your, your questions and problems are, uh, are pushed down and squeezed out. Right. Um, so I probably experienced that experientially in, in, in that way. So first. paraphrasing that, yes. would you say, um, because you know, I want to respect your, I want to respect your autonomy to not tell the dirty details, but at the same time, I want to be really clear. So, was your experience one of being um, shushed and pushed to the side and not being given an opportunity to ask questions, or yeah, was it something other than that? No, I think that's a pretty fair assessment of what was happening. Uh, okay. So, so you know, as someone who was training in in was studying theology at that time um, and starting to see myself as playing that role ongoing within faith community, like mm-hmm. something that I have to offer is this. No more reading DNA. Yeah, that's right. Now you're no, just no. reading the scriptures. That's right. The DNA <laughs> of the Lord. Um, <laughs> and so sitting there and, and, and saying, hey, look, um, I don't, you know, I remember having a conversation saying, I don't feel like. Uh, I need to agree with everything you say, but I feel like you need me to agree, re- agree with everything you say and, and to be told, yes, I, I do, and you need to take off your um, your clothes of being a theologian and asking questions and study and all of that kind of stuff 
at the door before you come into this faith community because um, that stuff doesn't really belong here. Um, Which is strange, really, because it feels like it's exactly the place that it should belong. <laughs> well, you'd, yeah, that's, uh, apparently not. Right. Not always. Yeah. Now, certainly our faith communities where that is embraced and does belong. Mm-hmm. But in the particular one that I was in at the time. Yeah, and, uh, w- and would it be fair to say that the community that you had found yourself in was, you know, on a similar path? You had found your way to that community because of your upbringing? Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, so, so the community I was in was a was an extension, was a bigger, brighter, better version of of what we kind of hoped for when I was a kid. You know, I was part of small churches, always hoping to be a part of some big glorious thing. And mm-hmm. so now I was in my twenties and I was part of some big glorious thing. And how exciting that was! It was the fulfilment of all of those childhood dreams in that sense. Mm. Uh, and it's hard when you come face to face with the fact that maybe. This whole thing has been a, a project in vain in that respect. <laughs> so so you have the experience yep. of learning about the difference between, you know, power and religion and that interplay yes. there and how and how there's maybe um I it did it, you know, I, I imagine perhaps it felt like, you know, choosing a pill in the Matrix movie, that old cliche. Um, and perhaps kind of peeking behind the curtain and going, oh, wait, hold on a second, things are not quite as they appear. Um, so you're in your mid to late 20s at this point? Late 20s, Late yeah. 20s. And then you learn about the historical, actually, how it was all set up. And so how did that come to be? So I started, so I'd, as I said before, I'd started studying, doing my, doing my master's in, in theology, and then ended up going in to do a PhD. And a part of my PhD project was looking at the way in which theology and spirituality intersect with some of the complex... Uh, social and political challenges that people face within society at the moment and how belief and spirituality shape people in their response to those issues and then looking at particular in in some of the um, conversations around indigenous experience Mm. in particular in New Zealand and and Māori and and so right through that process has been a building of that kind of awareness Mm -hmm. Uh, so it started early on in some of the study that I was doing but really um, through my experience of, you know, part of my PhD was going around and interviewing various um, Māori church ministers and leaders and hearing their stories and their experiences of what faith and spirituality had meant for them, both in really negative but also in really positive terms. They, they were all Christian and were talking in many respects positively about their experience within the church, but they were also bringing to the surface these things that demonstrated the way in which power was functioning uh, in which Christianity had been shaped by this particular colonial um, and you know mission and and the empire mm-hmm. and the extension of the empire and civilization into the world. Um, I mean, the fact that we call evangelistic meetings crusades or that Christians have called them crusades is a is a great uh, illustration <laughs> of how uh, the history of of oppression and and violence uh, still is held within. Um, things that might not on the surface look particularly oppressive or violent, but in fact are shaped very much by that kind of discourse. So right throughout that journey, continuing to build that that awareness. And I think I'm still continuing to become aware of the ways in which power is functioning. I think you're often blind to the way in which power functions if it doesn't affect you. Mm. Um, and so that's a growing conversation that you only become aware of as you actually have conversations with other people and, and hear their experiences and hear their stories. Hi there, Transformationists. Tash here. 
A couple of invitations that I'd love to make to you as we head towards the end of season one. Um, The first is this, I would love to hear your stories of transformation and change from the small little details to the big life-changing turning it upside down stuff. Please head along to thetransformationist.org and send us an email, tell us your story, tell me exactly what you learned, perhaps what you're still trying to figure out, I'd love to know. The second thing is this, if you have enjoyed one of the episodes or the whole season please go to wherever you get your podcasts subscribe rate and review and consider sharing it with somebody else who you might think finds it useful we're heading into the season wrap up next week and i would love to share some of your feedback and stories so don't be shy get in touch and you can always head along to facebook join the transformationist podcast with tash mcgill facebook group and share your thoughts there and now back to the episode Well, and I think, you know, for you as a man, it would be interesting to examine how power affects women differently because that's not a, that's not an experience that you would have lived in, but you, one that you can only pay attention to by listening. Yes, correct. <laughs> Which is kind of funny for me as a woman to say that to you as a man. No, I believe we'll call that woman'splaining. <laughs> oh, like it's, it's 100% true. And, mm. and I can become aware, and I think I have in, in, in more recent years, of the power dynamic and the way in which that's functioned for men and women within our Western society in general, but the church in particular, because mm. of certain theological ideas that have been held. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't talk about that experience as if it's my experience. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, I have to listen and, mm-hmm. and pay attention and allow myself to stop, you know, as a lecturer, it's a difficult thing to do, but allow myself to stop talking sometimes uh, <laughs> and, and hear other people talk. So let's go then to what happens. The, the, you've learned that the system isn't working. Your questions within the, within the church system that you are part of are not welcome. You, um, to use your words, you're being squeezed out to the edges um, why did you not just throw your hands up and go, yeah, okay, cool. So back to DNA and evolution for me, thanks. Um, well, I guess I, I was, so at this point I was studying theology whilst going through this process and I still felt compelled by particular aspects of uh, the Christian tradition and the Christian story that I felt were meaningful and important and that I was learning about as I was studying in ways that I'd never seen before in, you know, 25 years or 30 years of living within the church. Mm -hmm. There are all sorts of things about the Jesus story in particular that I had just never thought about, been told about or considered or reflected on that I was finding probably more compelling in some respects than anything I'd heard previous to that, even if it was compelling in a fundamentally different way than the kind of system in a a much more open uh, way that extended me beyond myself and beyond the community I was a part of in all sorts of really important ways. So um, something in me, and maybe I still can't quite explain it, Mm-hmm. Still, and sometimes I marvel at this myself. <laughs> uh, why am I still talking about God? Right. Um, when so many experiences within God communities, to use a terrible term, uh, have have not necessarily been flourishing 
for mm-hmm. me or had not been enhanced my human flourishing. <laughs> let's say that. Uh, and, and you know, sometimes I, I stop and I think myself, gosh, what, what am I doing? Why am I still here? Uh, and yet I find myself still drawn to the conversation and still drawn to the idea that, in, and I still in fact have a real compassion for all the people who are caught up within a particular system of Christianity that I think is not particularly beneficial for them. Mm. Uh, and to maybe translate some of what I've picked up along the way and to re-offer that back out and to say there's, there's a way we can hold to some of these ideas but in really beautiful and transformative and healthy ways rather than in destructive and oppressive ways. Was there a sense of, was there a, a definitive sense and time when you felt like, oh, I'm free of this now? Like what was the, what was the thing, what was the straw that broke the camel's back? Because you're clearly not still living within that same uh, system of religion. <laughs> Otherwise, I think you'd be a wreck. Um, but what was the straw that broke the camel's back? Um, what was the, what was the, pre- the precipitation? Huh. Um, the... I don't feel like it was one moment, in okay. all honesty. I don't think there was one moment where I was like, right, this is it. But I do think there were pivotal moments along the way. So one, I think being a part of, so in my 20s, being a part of a particular community and feeling like, oh man, this thing could change and if this thing changed, it'd be amazing. And then sitting down in conversation and looking across the room with people who were leading that community as they... Um, confronted me mm. with the things that they were concerned about and looking into their eyes and being like, this ain't changing. There's, right. there's too much on the line. There's too much at stake. There's too many millions of dollars. There's too much reputation on the line for any of this to change. Mm. And I think that moment still sticks with me. I say, oh, okay, I've got to get out. Right. Um, so that's, that's a moment that sticks with me. And then I think over the last few years, it has been a process of reinforcement to that that was indeed the correct decision. <laughs> um, as I've continued to encounter life experiences and I just think, thank the Lord, I suppose, I should do that, I'm a theologian, <laughs> that, uh, that I am not still within that way of thinking about things because I don't think I would have been able to cope with the way in which life has gone over the last few years mm. as we've encountered various tragedies and unexpected crises. And mm. I just think if I had been trying to hold to this very rigid system, it would have blown me apart by now. So I'm very grateful in that respect that I have been able to, to enter into a different way of seeing God and seeing the world and seeing who I am in the midst of that. Mm. One of the things that I think is so interesting about your story and your experience, having known you for a few years, and I remember meeting you um, many years ago, right when you were in the right when you would have been in the centre of that different system, um, and you're an altogether different person than the first impression that I ever had, um, in all of the right ways. Oh, um, good. good. <laughs> but one of the things that um, that strikes me. Deconstruction is a really, it's a buzzword within Christianity, I think, in certain circles nowadays. This idea that, that, uh, that people in their, in their you know, late 20s, early 30s go through a period of deconstructing their faith um, and 
the majority of people I was having a conversation with somebody just last night and then I had a conversation with somebody last week. I mean, this is this is almost the bread and butter of conversations that I have with people who I've known for a long time who are walking um, various different journeys around this idea of faith and where does faith and spirituality fit into their very modern life. Um, one of the things that I think is fascinating about your deconstruction is that it's been a deconstruction of your faith praxis as opposed to necessarily a major deconstruction of uh, the core kind of pillars of the belief system. Now, I'm sure that there are lots of other smaller parts about, you know, what you think about this and that and how, you know, various things come together. But but you've managed to walk through this path fundamentally kind of holding to... Um, fundamentally kind of holding to this idea that faith is something that you want to have. Now, is that true or is that just my perception? Um, and have you done a good job of like, you know, uh, talking the talk? I'm very good at talking the talk. No, <laughs> I, uh, I, th- I think that's true. I think probably what has happened, Let's, if we were to take some of those core ideas that sit at the heart of my faith, um, I hold them differently than I used to, even mm-hmm. the very core things. So um, I do hold them with more um, openness mm-hmm. and less certainty than I used to. Mm-hmm. So I think now I'm willing to say, this is what I think, but I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't. Think, I would never have said that when I was younger. I would have said, this is what I think, and if you don't agree with me, you'll burn forever. So you better convert to Christianity right now. Uh, <laughs> And if they and, and not that vision of Christianity, this other vision of Christianity that's a little bit safer actually. That one's a little bit too close to the fire. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, so, um, so yeah, I think what what I've done is is somehow be able to move into a space where I hold those those pillars that you speak of um, with an openness and with we might call it in theological circles an epistemological humility, which is really just to say. Uh, God, it sounds wanky, doesn't it? Um, yeah, a little bit. Uh, that, you know, epistemology is to do with how we know things. And and so in holding to these kind of claims, especially when you start making claims about uh, God and fundamental reality and what this all means, I mean, we are we are in the realm of making educated guesses. That's really what theology is trying to do is say, okay, based on our experience and our tradition and maybe based on this particular sacred text that's been handed down from thousands of years ago, um, what do we think is going on here, guys? Uh, and, And you've got to hold that with some humility and some openness. And if you don't, I think that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I can understand why it's... Uh, not always attractive to hold that with openness because it's more appealing to be able to say, nah, this is the way it is. Uh, but for me anyway, I've come to a point where I can say, well, I, I think these are the things that, that matter and I think this is what God is like and I think this is what faith is about. But I also want to hold that with some degree of openness. And I think when you talk about praxis, you know, how do we actually live? That's where the intersection is most important for me, which is to say, We've got to look at the way and what we be- the intersection between what we believe and how that impacts on the way that we actually live in the world, treat people, relate to people, um, and engage in life. And if what we believe is not um, helping us to live life in healthy and um, flourishing ways, both in our own lives but also in the 
um, engagement that we have with those around us, then we've got to reassess the things that we hold and believe because there's no point holding to some abstract set of ideas out in the sky there somewhere if, if they don't actually play out in real life and a real lived experience. Mm-hmm. Which I think is probably one of the um, key questions that people from a more uh, concrete theological system would have a question would have a would have a problem with is that the minute you begin to question something, um, there is that very real risk that you could potentially pull on the thread that unravels the entire sweater. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why questions are so feared, right? Like let us present a belief system and then do whatever you can do to hold to it. Yeah, I think the the preferable mode of living is to for, for many people is to say, tell me what the framework is and then I can work out how to live within that. Mm. Um, and yeah, if you start to pull on that little thread, uh, then it does, the whole thing you know, starts to come apart. And that's terrifying, especially if your whole way of being in the world, the, whole, the reason you go to work, the reason you are still, you know, the reason you are in a relationship you're in, the reason you're doing mm-hmm. all sorts of things that you're doing, the reason you volunteer and the way that you do, all of that stuff has been shaped by this particular set of quite concrete beliefs that you hold. So if you start to pull that apart, then what are you left with? The whole thing comes crashing down. Uh, and that's, that is genuinely terrifying for people and I can understand why no one wants to pull on that thread mm. um, because then how do you live? Well, I think that's the risk of deconstruction, right? The risk of deconstruction is that you go in with no clear outcome of what you may or may not want to hold on to in the midst of it. Um, Whereas I think it's possible to go into a deconstruction mode, I've used that buzzword far too many times, but um, it's possible to go into a deconstruction mode while still holding on to certain ideas. For example, uh, having a spirituality practice is important to me, therefore I'm going to explore and deconstruct and think about and unpack how some of these aspects are working for me in my life but I'm going to come out the other end with a spiritual practice that does work in my life. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, there are there are a number of things like that where you can actually just say purely based on evidence, mm-hmm. um, science, and you know to go back just because I'm a scientist, let's drop that in. Uh, you know, research tells us that that spiritual practices are in fact good for us. Mm-hmm. If, if they're healthy ones. So hedge um, your bets, guys. <laughs> um, so, so the question then becomes, well, okay, and, and I, don't, I think the reason I continue to tap into a particular tradition is I feel like what I don't want to do is say, well, screw everybody in the past. They had no idea what they were talking about, those stupid people. Um, <laughs> I'm going to figure out my own thing in exactly my own way. Um, and I think it's a very Western individualistic response to the process of deconstruction, mm-hmm. which is to say, I can figure out all of this by myself, for myself, in a way that works just for me. So I feel like the process of deconstruction needs to be shaped by a bigger question than that, which is what does it look like for me to engage in the world with other people? Mm-hmm. And with not just the people that are around me, but with the people who have lived before me, and to engage, therefore, in the tradition that I come from and also with the communities that I participate in. So I feel like those uh, help us to navigate maybe the process of deconstruction again mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, to in ways that are you know shaped by community, 
shaped by belonging to a much bigger conversation than just our own individual experience. I think the, the I like the fact that you talk about community and that ex, that that shared experience or shared exploration of ideas together because I think that's really fundamental in in all of my experiences and ex- explorations around this idea that has been the one thing that I've that's been a pillar for me that I've refused to let go of the idea that uh, that I need to be having spiritual conversations with other people so as to not end up you know off in a <laughs> off somewhere on walkabout and completely isolated um, from the reality that other people, you know, can bring. And partly I think that's about a journey of identity and self-awareness, um, but it is also about that broader contribution, right? Like if we've got something to, if if we've got something to say, we ought to be saying it to other people and not just to ourselves as a little self-congratulatory pat on the back. Um, I'm curious though, um, what... What would you say now to the person that you were age 20, 25? You know, is there anything that you wish that, is there anything you wish that somebody had said to you or that you would say to yourself or to anyone else who, you know, is in listening to this story is going, oh, wait, that sounds a bit familiar? (laughs) That, yes. Well, um, no one's asked me that question before. That's an interesting question. Um, if I met myself when I was 20, neither of us would like each other. 20-year-old <laughs> <laughs> me would think that the that, that older me has lost the plot completely um, and I would probably find the, uh, my, my 20-year-old self uh, a judgmental, narrow-minded, interesting person. But having said that, out of love for myself and for other people uh, who are different from me, I th- yeah, I th- what I wish someone had said to me, because I did have moments and times where questions would come to the surface and I just didn't know what to do with them and I felt like they were bad. I felt like that was something wrong that was happening mm. because questions were clearly a sign that I didn't have strong enough faith. Mm. And I think if someone had come to me and just said, you know what, those are good questions. Mm-hmm. Those are natural questions to be asking. Those are important questions to be asking. And even if you don't have all the answers to those right now, you don't have to answer them straight away, but you can let them breathe a little bit. You don't have to push them back down or suppress them. You can just let them come to the surface and sit there and you'll figure that out mm-hmm. as you go along, but don't feel that you've got to box all those up and, and push them down deep. Because ultimately I think that creates, and what I see when I look back at my own 20s, although I would never have said this at the time, but I know from going back to read my own journals and reflections from that time, mm. is that I was a deeply anxious person mm. because I had pushed so much of this stuff down and I was furiously trying to live up to some kind of idea that I thought I had to be, that I was just never capable of being. Um, and so if someone had said to me, it's okay, those things that you think are weaknesses maybe aren't, so bad, those questions that you have aren't a sign of lack of faith or of doubt or whatever they might be. Just just let them come and let let it play out. Uh, and so I, I probably wish someone had said that to me. I don't know if I would have listened to them, but <laughs> <laughs> I'd at least like to be able to tell the story about how some crazy person said that to me and I thought they were nuts. Is there anything you wish you'd done differently in the process of emerging from that power system and structure? 
I probably wish I had uh, emerged, to use that word, uh, earlier. I think I left it too long and so I became too frustrated. Mm. Um, I, I have some compassion for myself in understanding why it took me that long. Right. But I still look back and I think oh, it would have been probably good to to get out a couple of years earlier. <laughs> to get out. I mean, you know, to, to be able to let go of some stuff um, earlier than I did. Mm. And... But then, you know, I was talking to someone the other day and I was talking about a few of my regrets from, from that time in my life and they were like, well, you know what, I spent my whole 20s uh, just doing drugs the whole time and I regret that. And they were like, everyone regrets their 20s. <laughs> so I was like, well, there you go, that makes me feel better. <laughs> the, wow, perfect, there you go, yeah. off the hook. You know, it's, so, it's, it's really fascinating to me because one of the ideas that I came across oh, probably in my mid-20s was... Um, was this the reality that um, that if you if you can hold to the pillar of the idea that there is a creative divine force in the universe, let's let's call that force God, for the sake of this conversation, um, then how there's an element to which I think it's ridiculous that humanity has managed to uh, to constrict and contract the idea of uh, who God is and how God works in the world to a very narrow set of rules that are mostly defined by what makes sense in terms of human behaviour. To the extent that I think think it's completely acceptable, the idea that, that God could still be fundamentally good and worthy um, in a toxic, power-ridden structure God can still be meaningful and good for somebody who is part of that community, um, just in the same way that God can still be good and meaningful and real for somebody who is outside of that power structure. And so what that leaves me with is both a paradoxical tension of, okay, but I really want to demolish the nasty, toxic power structure that's the antithesis of everything that actually the Christian faith was based upon in this character of Jesus, uh, really want to destroy that, tear it down, rip it to shreds, let's burn the whole thing up, Blah, you know, crazy, crazy anarchy. Um, but at the same time, trying to hold in respect the very real lives f- for whom there are many, many people, like there are many people for whom those beliefs are security and comfort and work really well for them in their day-to-day life. So what's the difference between people like you and me, I'll put us to, put it together, what's the difference between people like you and me who go, wait, no, this system doesn't work, and people who say, no, this system works really well for me? And how are we both right? Or is one of us wrong? Well, obviously <laughs> we are very enlightened, you and I. Uh, no, jokes. Well, no. Um, I, think, I think that's a really good question. And one of the problems with deconstruction is that it, I mean, it's an exhilarating feeling to tear something down that you've felt um, constricted by. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we very quickly forget that it wasn't that long ago that we were a part of the thing that and building it mm-hmm. <laughs> with all of our heart and passion, you know. Uh, and, and, and as much as I've talked about maybe negative sense of some of my journey, I also know that there were many ways in which I engaged in faith and in life and in spirituality that I still find meaningful and have helped to shape me 
in, in my journey and in the kind of person that I've become. So I don't want to look at that and say that was all terrible and all the people who participate that and terrible. And the other problem with that is whatever new thing you're trying, you try to build that's not at all like that old terrible toxic thing that you used to be in mm-hmm. will inevitably, uh, because this is the way of human structures and systems, uh, carry with it its own kind of power and toxicity and, and problem. Mm. Uh, and so the, the, the desire for some kind of utopian community uh, and this is often the problem for people who go off to Bible college, like me, uh, as you learn about all of these ideas and you're like, oh, that's amazing. Imagine if we could build a community that was like that. Um, and then you realise that the problem with that is humans. Well, that's right. Uh, the problem <laughs> is yourself because you're a moron in your own way. Everybody is. And, yeah, and we're all we're, idiots. We've all, we've all got issues. We all need to go to therapy. Uh, and when all of our issues collide with one another, it's bound to create all sorts of problems. And so, yeah, what I don't want to say is that um, all, all church systems that don't look like what I think they should look like are problematic and need to be torn down. Um, to be able to hold the fact that, yeah, uh, for some people they still do really work and for a portion of my life they really worked for me. Um, I just came to a place personally where it no longer it had stopped being healthy for me and it started becoming deeply unhealthy for me. Mm. And if that's the case, then I think what's needed, and, I, and, and this is where I would critique the system, is for those people in that place, sometimes what can happen is you're made to feel like that transition where, oh, this community has stopped becoming healthy for me. Um, you're made to feel like maybe that's all your fault and it's because you've got a problem. Which takes us back to that that aspect of belonging, which yeah. is so often used in that system. That's right. I mean, the the hard reality of that situation is that in leaving that community, you left behind people who were good, close friends. Oh yeah, yeah. And there's loss involved with that. It's painful. I st- I mean, it's you know nearly ten years, and I still wake up at three in the morning with dreams that I am back involved, speaking, playing music, doing various things and some kind of incident, you know, arises. Um, I had a dream the other night <laughs> that I, oh, this, this is turning into therapy. This is <laughs> awesome. Uh, I had a dream the other night that, you know, I was, I was, I'd been invited back to, to, to a previous community mm-hmm. uh, to speak. Uh, but then when I turned up, no one had told the pastor and he was shocked to find that I'd been invited onto the stage and say so in front of a thousand people, he, he, um, he asked why anybody should listen to anything that I had to say. Right. Um, and then I wake up at three in the morning thinking about that. So mm-hmm. there's just a few layers to unpack there. Yeah, yeah, there's Frosty. a little bit there. Yeah, and look, no, look, I'm, I'm talking to somebody about that. Uh. <laughs> but it's interesting, isn't it? Because you can leave something behind. You can leave something behind that's not healthy for you and yet still um, have your subconscious processing the potential narratives for redemption and restoration and then. And then you, you, your own mind does a bit of a bait and switch on you and says, no, actually, here's the thing that you're afraid of, which is rejection from that community that you rejected, right? Yeah, because and it comes back to belonging, which is that belonging matters so deeply to us. And we will tolerate all sorts of things if we can belong. And yeah, I, I, we, you know, my partner and I, Wife, partner, I don't know what the correct word is these days. Um, you know, we still have many friends 
um, who are where we were. Um, and at the time when we when we came out of that, which was just one part of the process of what we, you know our own journey of faith, um, it was it was deeply and you know it was genuinely painful. Mm. Um, not just because it was like oh screw this system, uh, we're off to do something else. It was genuinely painful because these are relationships and friendships, and it's belonging. It's it's a feeling of belonging that is hard to find elsewhere mm. unless it, maybe CrossFit. CrossFit's definitely, you know, they're banking <laughs> on the, you know, <laughs> the replacement church of the 21st century. Um, I people, believe it's F45 now. Oh, actually. yeah, it probably is, you know. That's where belonging, tribe, family, that's where it all happens. Um, but, you know, church is one of those places where people still do very much feel like they belong and and belong in particular ways because it intersects with the things that people often hold most closely, which is their faith and their spirituality. Mm. Uh, and so that's an incredibly potent mix uh, and not easy to navigate change in relation to. Mm-hmm. When you left that community, did you envisage that you would find yourself in a leadership role within faith and theology? Hmm. Yes and no. I, I didn't in the sense that the last thing I probably wanted to do when I left that community was to suddenly find myself in, well, not suddenly, but to, to, to find myself involved and engaged in leadership in another community just because the, it was a painful experience and I didn't want to necessarily keep poking at that sore. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> sorry for the image. Uh, <laughs> Some self-preservation yeah. set yeah. in. Yeah. Right. But at the same time, because of my interest in theology and my continuing study in that area and my lecturing and my teaching, I felt like I was still exploring and unpacking and unfolding into a way of seeing things that I thought, for me at least, was genuinely liberating and and, and transforming. And I hoped that, I mean, as someone doing that, my hope was that that would somehow find its way out of me and be helpful for other people too. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know what that would look like, but I still had that under the surface of what I might see in my future. Mm. So you started your career in biomedical science with this intention of I'm going to do good work and find cures for things and make a difference in the world and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then you take this right-hand turn into theology, perhaps a left-hand turn depending on which way you want to describe it, but you take a turn into theology. Um, What now is the expression of you doing good in the world, which is one of those core values that you talked about earlier on. Well, and actually that core value is something I'm very grateful to my upbringing for, Mm. which is this idea that regardless of how it came into me, uh, that my life matters and that I want to do something meaningful. Mm. And so I'm really grateful to all of the experiences that I had growing up within community of faith. Tambourines and all. Yep. That helped, <laughs> um, at the very least, shape that into me in a really, really deep way, which is I feel like my life is supposed to make some kind of meaningful contribution mm. in the world and to the lives of others. So um, that's the first thing. Uh, what was the question? <laughs> no, just, How now are you doing that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. How now am I doing that? So um, in, a, in, a, in a couple of different ways. So I continue to, to teach theology 
and so I teach you know budding minds and start them on the journey mm-hmm. of exploration and it's always an interesting experience teaching people who are just beginning their journey of theological education mm-hmm. um, seeing kind of where I was mm. uh, each year as this new first year of students come in you, you get to see yourself again uh, is that fun <laughs> oh well, look something else I'm talking to my therapist about <laughs> Um, so, so that's one of the things I'm, I'm doing and I continue to do some, some research and some study and one of the things I, I'm also doing in terms of my research is going back around and connecting in some of the original science study that I did. So when I was hmm. at university, uh, my research year was around the impact of emotional trauma on our immune system and its ability to respond to mm-hmm. incoming attack and... So at the moment, I'm quite interested in how spirituality might also be involved in that conversation, which is to say, because some of the research was definitely suggesting that emotional trauma when left unprocessed and when undealt with can significantly influence in a negative way our immune system and its ability to keep us healthy. Mm-hmm. And so what does what role could meaningful embodied spirituality and faith play in helping to make us whole and healthy people. Um, so There's inter- a whole other podcast episode in that, Oh, mate. yeah, good. <laughs> Have me back. Come um, on. So the intersection of those things I find, you know, super interesting um, because I grew up with a spirituality that was quite disembodied in many respects. It was about mm. trying to transcend your own, your own human physical experience. The race to die, to get out of this somehow broken body into a new body yeah. that was somehow going to be perfect, right? Yeah. I, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. I remember thinking, why does anybody want to live to be old? Like, get me out of this thing. Oh, well, yeah. The, yeah the, uh, well, this, I'm this five foot an, two. Uh, another, <laughs> I'm not much taller. Uh, the, other, <laughs> the other podcast episode we do is, you know, um, <laughs> the natural implication of... Um, of Christian theology around heaven and and hell would be, you know, really to to knock everybody off as young as possible and just get to the next phase. Yeah, totally. Um, so Herod was onto something. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> he had it down. That guy. Oh wait, we've gone too far. Yeah. We've gone too far. Um, so and and so so I had a, a Christianity that was about escaping really this world mm. eventually, and in the present escaping it through experience through mm-hmm. some kind of transcendental experience. Um, but what if spirituality actually helped us inhabit our own bodies in really healthy ways? Mm-hmm. And um, inhabit the earth in a healthy way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's, that's some stuff I'm exploring at the moment. And then I'm, I'm also really interested in helping to translate some of the work that I've done theologically, um, especially for people who feel like they're on the margins of faith communities or who maybe feel like they're going a little bit crazy within the church communities they find themselves in. Mm. wondering if those questions that are rising to the surface are legitimate or not, wondering Mm. if it's okay to ask that stuff. Um, So I'm interested in exploring that space and and maybe being helpful Mm. to people like me. And are you doing that via any means in particular? Oh, thank you, Tash, for asking. Insert your your promo here. Uh, I am. Funny you should ask. (laughs) So uh, I've got a podcast coming out called In The Shift uh, and and a blog as well, so you can go to intheshift.com. And, uh, and also look out for the podcast where we'll be exploring some of that stuff. Is there anything, uh, is there anything that you would offer as insight to anybody who's um, exploring some of these areas and asking questions? 
um, an insight or perhaps an encouragement that you would offer from your own experience? I think to be aware that uh, the world is much bigger than you know it right now. And because sometimes I think you can feel a bit stuck or a bit trapped or like maybe you're the only one thinking these things, um, that you're within this group of people and everybody around you seems to be going along with it and you're sitting there going, I'm not so sure about this. Uh, but maybe maybe it's me that's going crazy. Maybe it's me that's, that's losing the plot here. Um, and for me, what was really helpful was, was, was starting to experience the fact that there was a world much bigger than the world that I was in, uh, that outside of my bubble, all sorts of people <laughs> existed and they were good people and they weren't all terrible out there. Uh, and so, so it's okay. The world is bigger than you thought. God is bigger and much more capable of coping <laughs> with questions and with doubt and with anxiety and distress than maybe you might think. Mm. Um, so you'll be all right. Dr. Frost, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Transformationist. We hope that the journey doesn't stop here. For more information about this episode and materials we referenced, please visit thetransformationist.org or join the Facebook group for more conversation about this week's episode. Just search for The Transformationist by Tash McGill on Facebook. This episode was written and produced by Tash McGill with production support from Truthwork Media and music is by Hans Van Vliet. The Transformationist is brought to you by Solar Feeder Consulting and TashMcGill.com.